Please join me this morning in our prayer for illumination. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it. Through Christ our Lord, amen. The first reading today is from 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 4 through 20. It's found on page 242 in your pew Bible. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife, Panina, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my lord. I am a woman deeply troubled. I have not drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then a woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. They rose early the next morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 925. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Later on, when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will this be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Now, to my best recollection, walls built by humans don't fare too well in the kingdom of God. A few that come to my mind are the Tower of Babel, the walls of Jericho, and of course, in our reading today, the great temple in Jerusalem all eventually come tumbling, crumbling down. Now, the title of my sermon comes from that great American theologian, John Mellencamp, who wrote his hit song of the same title back in 1983. He says the song came to him as a response to how people began to treat him once he became famous. He felt like he was the same person on the inside, but everybody else around him was starting to put up these walls of pretense and put walls around him. They were treating him differently because he was now famous. And he didn't really like that at all. So he wanted to tear down those walls that separated him from his public life and who he really felt that he was. And the walls came crumbling down. I've experienced myself a few walls coming down in my own life it's usually a rather messy affair. I grew up in northwest Arkansas, not 50 miles from the Oklahoma border. I remember as a young boy a tornado touching down not far from our family's farm. The next day, my grandfather loaded me up in our pickup truck, and we rode up on a high ridge so that we could see the valley where the twister had touched down. It had destroyed several of our neighbors' houses, their barns, their chicken houses. No human was killed, but what had once been a serene valley now looked like something out of a war movie. Pieces and parts of buildings, fences, homes, tin roofs from chicken houses were scattered all over that rush, lush green valley. And there was a deep, dark scar in the grass that ran down its center. <clears throat> Seeing the aftermath of that tornado was my first brush with destruction on a grand scale. 
but I've seen and experienced plenty since. Earthquakes in California, hurricanes on the Gulf Coast, and on the East Coast. And of course, there are other types of destruction in the world, war, terrorism, evil. And there's the destruction of the human body and mind, disease, mental illness, addiction, betrayal, that destroy lives, relationships, and our hopes and our dreams. It makes us want to just stay inside sometimes and hide, doesn't it? Our scripture reading today points us to a better alternative than hiding. Now, I've not found in the Bible many references to an earthly life of roses and easy streets. But what I have found is a God who loves his created and has a hope and a future for us that is beyond our earthly imagination. A hope and a future despite the evil and human destruction that is in the world. In our reading today, Jesus has just spent a couple of days in Jerusalem, visiting the temple, flipping over some tables, arguing with the ruling authority, praising a widow and her offering while most likely offending the ruling authority, and just creating general mischief. As Jesus and the disciples leave the temple for the last time of Jesus' earthly life, an unnamed disciple comments on the splendor of the massive temple complex. The disciples seem not to remember Jesus' continual teaching that appearance and divine reality are not always the same. All of the disciples would be aware of the great architectural achievements that surrounded them. The temple in Jerusalem with its surrounding structures was magnificent by all accounts. And we do have other accounts of the temple's grandeur from other ancient writers, both Greek and Roman. And I think that we can say that both those cultures would not be easily impressed with another culture's work, but they were. The Roman historian Tacitus described the temple complex as a mountain of white marble adorned with gold. He called it a temple of immense wealth. The surrounding complex included massive courtyards, colonnaded courts, grand porches and balconies covered walkways and monumental stairs. Herod the Great, the Roman overlord and a great builder in his own right, had built a monument to the ages, a wonder of the world. He had built it to impress the wealthiest and the most powerful earthly rulers of the day, and he had succeeded. But in the kingdom of God, appearance and divine reality are not always the same thing. Jesus is telling his disciples and us not to put our faith in what the world can do, because in the end, God most likely has a different plan. Yes, the world will flood, but humanity will survive. God's chosen people will be cast into slavery not once but twice, and they will be set free. A boy with three small stones will fell a giant. That same boy, the youngest son of Jesse, will become a great king. God will come and live among his people as a poor, defenseless child from a backwater town that nothing good really ever came out of. And that child will give his life for you 
and for me. God's Spirit will light a flame in the birthing of the church and it will spread to the four corners of the world and burn on for eternity. And a magnificent temple will be built and it will be destroyed. But God and God's kingdom will not be. What if each of us lived our lives not putting our faith and our future in what we can build, in what we think we know, in what we think is strong and magnificent? What if we lived a life full of God's promise that in the end, everything was going to be okay? The grand story of Scripture, the meta-narrative of God's children, is believing in a God that continually tells us, I got this. I got this. Yes, disaster comes, both personal and community-wide, illness, death, destruction. Jesus commands the disciples and us to remain calm in these unsettling events. For the approaching natural disasters and human-created catastrophes are part of our story. There is evil. Yes, there is evil in the world. It affects the earth itself and the creatures that inhabit it. But God's rescue... God's promise of salvation is sure. The coming of false prophets, wars, rumor of war, earthquakes are just the birth pangs, just the beginning signs of God's final act of salvation. Now, I'm not sure how other pastors work, but I carry a scripture reading around that I'm going to preach and keep it in my head kind of for a long time. I had memorized this scripture before we went on vacation. Some of you may know I've been gone for a couple weeks. Our family, we went to Denmark to visit our daughter who's studying abroad. And while I was away, I found a story that I felt would really help us illustrate this lesson today. Now, my undergraduate degrees in history, I like to read history books for fun, uh, mostly World War II and Civil War history. And I was fortunate to meet uh, an author, James Scott, who's also a member here at Mount Pleasant Presbyterian, who has written a really excellent book titled Target Tokyo, Jimmy Doolittle and the Raid that Avenged Pearl Harbor. I took it along with me on the trip to read. Now, many of you may remember Doolittle's raid uh, from your history books or maybe from your own personal experience growing up. Uh, but Scott's book about the details of that raid and its aftermath, both in the lives of those who flew the mission and those in, Jap in Japan, it was a fascinating story and a great read. In his book, Scott gives us insight into the planning, execution, and aftermath of the raid and the lives of the individuals involved, following each of the airline crews and what happened to them after their daring raid on Tokyo. One of the bomber crews was captured by the Japanese when the mission was over. They had to abandon their plane in Japanese-occupied China, and they were captured. They were treated as war criminals. Three of those captured were executed in a firing squad, and the others were brutally tortured and starved. One member of that captured crew was a bombardier named Jacob DeShazer. He would spend 40 months in solitary confinement in the worst conditions you can imagine. He struggled with his own survival and really struggled with his own sanity. To try and keep themselves sane, the prisoners had asked their captors for some books to read. 
And one day, lo and behold, a few books showed up. One of those books was the Bible. It was a King James Version, and it still had the price tag on the front, $1.97. The guards told them that they could only have the books for three weeks. DeShazer decided that God was really his only companion in that cell, and so he attacked God's word with what little energy he had left. He would later write about his conversion. One day in my cell, I felt the call as clearly as though a voice were speaking to me. I don't mean I heard an actual voice. It was like a flash of truth. I even tried to think about something else, but I couldn't. He decided at that moment if he survived his ordeal, he would return to Japan as a missionary. He continued, Hunger, starvation, a freezing cold prison cell no longer held horror for me. They would only be a passing moment. Even death could not hold a threat when I knew God had saved me. So he decided to put his faith to the test. He ignored the hostility of the guards, the anger he felt for the punishment that they had given them, and he became friendly towards them. He actually greeted them every morning with a pleasant, How are you today? After six straight days of this, his guard presented him with a sweet potato, a valued treasure in a prison. DeShazer survived his prison journey and was eventually liberated at the end of the war. He returned home and he enrolled in college and received a degree in biblical literature. In 1948, he returned to Japan with his wife Florence as Methodist missionaries to Japan. They would stay in Japan for 30 years, planting churches, leading revivals, and bringing thousands and thousands of Japanese to Christ. DeShazer's most significant conversion was that of Japanese air commander Mitsuho Fushiada. Fushiada had led the raid on Pearl Harbor. Fushiada was greatly disheartened for what he had done during the war and what his country had done in the war. He found solace in DeShazer's story of forgiveness, and he met him and converted to Christianity, and he and DeShazer became lifelong friends. Now, I tell you this story because Jacob DeShazer did not allow the walls of hatred, the walls of a prison cell, to destroy his soul. He tore those walls down with really the only way to do such a thing, with the word of God and the spirit of God in his heart. So if you're wondering how do we survive that devastating diagnosis of an, of an aggressive cancer or other illness, the destructive behavior of a loved one, acts of terror, planes falling from the sky, armed terrorists loose on the streets in some of the greatest cities of the world, or the aftermath of a natural disaster, how do we live into the competing voices all full of passion and intensity, claiming that they have the answer to this new age. Our focus must not be on the signs themselves, but rather on the one who is to come, the one who enables us to look up from the destruction and claim the reality of God's blessing on our lives. It may appear to us at times that the world has gone mad, totally out of control, 
but the center will hold. And to our amazement, we will discover God has work for us to do. To tear down a few walls and reveal to the world so that we can fully live into the kingdom that God has and the promise of salvation he has for everyone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.